Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your minds in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined by Mr. Gabriel Krauser, the other half. Hello. I can't tell. I think in this episode, one of us has got to be the ice and the other one has to be the Amarula, but I'm not sure which. Yes. I don't know. I think I think you might be in a more icy mood today. Um, I might we'll, be. Nice. We'll see. <laughs> so uh, we are back. We uh, took a hiatus last week because uh, Gabriel was very busy saving the country from great injustices, um, which he managed to do. Uh, and you should check out his coverage on Peter Teeth and the uh, murder case, or the alleged, or the murder accusations rather um, that were made there. Uh, it's some good stuff. Gabriel did some really good reporting, which helped to prevent what might have been a bit of a miscarriage of justice um, if if things had gone on. Uh, so very well done to you, Gabriel. Thank you, sir. I don't know. I don't know if I. Yeah, I'll just say thank you very much. Yeah, well, look, you didn't, whatever you did, you didn't hurt. <laughs> you certainly, I think, improved the situation. Uh, so I just heard a story now, which um, I don't have all the details on. Um, and I've heard it from uh, secondhand sources, people who talk to firsthand sources about what's going on in the town. Um, which and, and it's worth flagging. Watch the news for it. They may not be reporting on it because South Africa's media... It's very interested in publishing press releases and leaked information from ANC factions, but doesn't always do that much original reporting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush there. There's certainly exceptions, but uh, some of the, I would guess you might sarcastically call them the prestige media, definitely, that, that does describe them. Um, I like that phrase. There's a town in Northern Cape called Prisca. Um, that a, the town that might a, be stretching it. Yeah, 14,000 people in the middle of the desert, absolutely tiny. Um, it is. It has a big copper mine near it, and apparently last week um, some some dudes associated with the RET faction, the ANC, rolled into town. They were not friends with the local ANC, and they uh, either fomented or encouraged, it's not entirely clear, some kind of service delivery protest. And so the version of the story I've heard is that basically they showed up at the mine and they said, and this was with several guys armed heavily um, with, uh, I know assault rifle is not a very technical term, but I'm going to just use it now because most people know what it what that means. <laughs> um, showed up with assault rifles and told the mine management, uh, you're going to share 10% um, of the profits with the quote unquote community and we are the community, and you're going to give us all the subcontracting uh, uh, agreements and licenses and stuff for, for the mine as well, or else, well, there's going to be trouble. Uh, and then they tried to block off the town, and they burnt tires. Um, so then if, there if, was... this if this version is right, the headline would be something like, armed tenderpreneurs show up to strike a deal. Right, uh, right. In front of mob that's burning tires in the streets. So over the next couple of days, um, also there was allegedly a, a, a white teenage kid who was a farmer's son there who also got beaten up by some of these guys. Um, and that, of course, made things worse because then you had a series of armed standoffs between the quote-unquote protesters and their security company. It's rather unusual for protesters to have a security company. 
<laughs> Although, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah, it's um, very medieval. I feel I feel no one yeah, in the 1500s would be surprised to have. You've actually just reminded me of something that I'm going to mention after after I've finished telling the story. Um, so, yeah, these 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 dudes show up. There's a bunch of really tense standoffs that almost result in bloodshed between mine security, the protesters and their armed dudes, local farmers. And, uh, yeah, there's not much action from the police. The police sent some people in to mediate, um, which consisted of basically asking everyone to just be nice to each other. Uh, so... Once again, the South African police service does not seem to be coming in guns blazing. Um, I think no one would uh, would accuse them of doing that. Now, oh, we don't know the situation entirely, so maybe that was the right call, but my gut feeling says no. Um, but we anyway, have heard that the mayor... Um, yeah, the ANC mayor is, is trying to stand up to these guys. He's not associated, so it's definitely a different branch of the ANC, um, and, but he's not having much success either because it seems like the police are not really helping him out there which is not great. Um, so it's very nasty. Um, there's obviously a sort of uh, potential for this to be spun in a racial narrative way. Um, but generally, I think it's kind of believable, this story, because it's the general disorder and chaos that is seeping in into South Africa, particularly in South Africa's rural areas, I mean, which we've so, seen numerous examples of recently. Yeah, this story reminded me of my second last uh, uh, story in Mpumalanga, in Impulusi, where after some serious failures on the part of some laborers at a sawmill in this little town in Pulusi, which is very close to the Swazi border, um, people were fired. And it's very hard to fire people in South Africa because the labor law is very protective. But if you breach trust and you kidnap the manager of the sawmill and... <laughs> steal things then, yeah i remember you i think you told the story on the uh, podcast a couple of episodes yeah, ago then you can right. get fired and so uh, 50 people were fired and then uh, a month later they uh, protested that um and uh basically you know burning tires on the street same play uh attempts to negotiate uh getting their jobs back while being armed with not guns, but armed with pangas and and burning right. tires and rocks, and they and they threw rocks at people that I spoke to. And uh, after a week, the uh, sawmill management said, "Look, we've we've got to get our people in." They called the police. They said, "Please be there. This is the plan. This is how we're going to do it." Um, the police didn't really show up, and one of the actual workers was uh, sort of trapped. The security guys try to get out to help him out. Uh, they were then attacked from both sides, uh, shot rubber bullets in, in self-defense on their version. Um, but in the course of that, uh, killed one of the protesters. Um, uh, it's a... Yeah, not a, not it's a, it's a, Yeah, it's a really tragic thing that, that, that just happens really often. I mean, in South Africa, there really are 10 violent protests a day on average um, mm. in the years before lockdown. And, uh, and I think we're getting back to that. And uh, so far in this case, it doesn't seem like anyone's died. Uh, so small mercy, that is, to, to be, to, well, big mercy, actually, to be grateful for. And we, and we hope it stays like that. And we will be keeping our eye on the story. Right. Uh, and we hope you do, too. But we should probably move on to... Well, let me just say the thing you reminded me of very quickly. Yeah. So there's this, this thing I've seen, because, you know, I'm, I'm super keen on learning about medieval history. 
And there's this recurring thing that happens in medieval government, which is people don't have a vote, right? Because, of course, you know, you don't vote for kings, as Monty Python reminded us. Yes. Um, and yet you need some sort of way to interact with the populace. You know, find out what they want, what they don't want, because popular opinion, even in that kind of system, does sort of matter a little bit. Uh, yes. You know, if the peasants are all downing tools, it's going to be difficult to get in that year's harvest. So riots and violent protests were very much a part of the political culture. That was how you got attention. If you were angry enough about something to riot, <laughs> then the local nobility or the king or whoever was in charge would come in and say, oh, clearly something has gone wrong. They'd slap a couple of people in the stocks, nothing too serious. And then uh, they would uh, try and fix the problem. And then everyone would go back to business as usual. Mm. And this was a recurring feature of uh, English government for hundreds of years. It was a recurring feature of uh, Byzantine government. Um, mm. where the people in the the, the chariot stadium, uh, the Circus Maximus, would chant slogans that were demeaning or in favor of a particular political position, or they might riot. Uh, and and so this is quite, it's it's sort of like, I guess, a vaguely, it's something that Fidel Castro would approve of. Fidel Castro <laughs> once said, we don't need to have democracy in, in Cuba because we have direct democracy, which is that if the people really want to, uh, to to have their issues heard. They'll all gather together in front of my residence and then they'll speak to me and I'll speak to them and we'll have a direct conversation. <laughs> so I wouldn't call it a good thing, but let's just say that there's a very strong precedent for this kind of political culture. Indeed. And um, I'm not sure Indeed. these are the societies we perhaps want to emulate. Yeah, it's I, I what I like about that is 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 when people talk about technology, I think they so often uh, focus on machines, on things with yes. internal combustion engines or with silicon, you know, uh, transistors, computers, digital things stuff. Things that beep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and flashlights. But a, a voting, a, a ballot box, that's a technology. That's a good technology. What an old and noble technology. What a way to... To, to deal underutilized with yeah. for much of history but very good yeah um, and uh, and a little bit underutilized in South Africa it is it is just a damning fact that we have just about the highest highest protest per day sort of rate mm. in the world and just and one of the fastest uh falls in voter participation mm, exactly our numbers in absolute terms aren't that low but if you compare them to where they were uh, just a decade a couple ago, years ago yeah it's huge um Although our colleague Anthea Jeffrey has has made the case that in 1994 they were perhaps not as high as they were recorded, but that's a quite a controversial yeah. position. I, I was thinking more of 2000 and, uh, and four. four, which was the really big yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that piece by Anthea Jeffrey is definitely worth checking out, but we'll say that for our recommends. So definitely. the next topic that we wanted to discuss, I suppose, is, is a bit similar. Um, it's just the George Floyd trial's conclusion. We talked about the the trial. We didn't really uh, get a chance to discuss the judgment. Um, I think we did on the Daily French show, but but not on not on the Two Crickets podcast because yeah. uh, we missed a week. And I think the thing uh, that struck me, the the judgment struck me as as sound and judicious. Mm. Uh, the prosecution made a really strong case, uh, both on cause of death being the the knee on the neck. 
and the, yeah. and the pressure generally applied to his body. Um, and and the Im- in terms improperness of, 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 of him acting like that. Yeah, of the yeah. So, I, I saw an interview with uh, one of the jurors, actually. He was uh, he's a sort of, I don't know, 30s, 40s uh, black dude. I think he's a basketball coach. Anyway, he gave an interview to the media, and they basically, he said, on his version, we all went in there with an open mind, um, and the dude looked, Chauvin looked very confident the first couple of days, and then after the medical testimony where the, the I can't remember what he was described as a breathing expert, described yeah, the symptoms of a, yes, yeah. uh, described the symptoms of dying from lack of oxygen, basically the juror said that that was what swung his mind. And then yeah. he said, there's no, this is completely damning and it's really difficult to get around. And he said that the the defense never battered that away successfully. Now, I mean, you know, I, I'm not enough of an expert in these things to know whether that's a good judgment or not. But that does seem fairly reasonable to me on the surface. Yeah, I watched the defense's expert and he was torn to shreds. And uh, very conservative publications like the National Review also describe things that way. So I think the the main thing just to notice is just this these two kinds of technology again. The one mm. kind of technology is like, okay, people are really angry that this cop did this thing. So you need to go outside and protest. And and a lot of that protest does end up getting violent and lots of people died in the course of those protests and and lootings and uh, and burnings and whatnot. Um and the the softer side of that same technology is uh, comes from politicians who uh, try and influence the the proceedings, and we definitely saw some of that this time, which was very yeah. ugly. In particular, Maxine Waters, who's a, a a congressman, who said, you know, if they don't find Chauvin guilty, then we need to hit the streets again and protest some more, and um, sort of and and Biden's sort of rhetoric about uh about the judgment not showing that america's system works but really showing that america's system doesn't work and that it's still systemically racist because only one cop has gone to jail um the the other cops are still on trial and yeah anyway it's um, uh it's a dumb thing to say but joe biden has a history of saying somewhat dumb things (laughs) but so there's that technology right the same thing of like just you know people go Mm. out the, the court of public opinion uh which which includes words and some of those are smart words and some of those are dumb words and then you know also includes stones and tires and well in their case not tires but burning things and guns and there's this other technology which is the technology of the court which uh is is very technical thing uh the requirements that need to be met the way time to develop jury selection yeah Mm. just that technology is amazing and i think it did really well um so i think i think we're seeing a thing that we we often see something in America now. I think there are definitely some criticisms you can make of the U.S. justice system, but in this case, it performed pretty well. Um, we talked about that, like uh, not last episode, but the episode before that. Um, and this, you know, it's a great showcase of this technology. Uh, but America's political scene, um, in contrast, it did its best to kind of ruin things, particularly from 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 the left in this case, um, particularly from people like Maxine Waters. And I, I think this is a recurring theme of America of the past couple of years is that a lot of the institutions hold up relatively well, but the political scene is just the worst part of the situation in every case, Yeah. Um, which I don't think was always true, actually. No. Uh, and and um, 
yeah, that's very concerning, I think, because, but as long as the other institutions manage to hold still, I think there's still hope that they can pull out of this strange place they're in. Yeah, we must hope. Indeed. As go they, so goes the world in a lot of ways. Um, and they're so, so full of to, hope. Yeah. Yeah, no. It, it, we, we, we both of us are American files in our own way. Um, Gabriel has much more practical experience than I do because I've only been there on holiday. He's actually lived there. Uh, yeah. I've been speaking with some, some, some of my American friends, actually. And they uh, report to me some very positive vibrations as it were That's um, good. the every single american that i know um has been vaccinated mm. so that's great must be nice <laughs> <laughs> i am getting to the point where like i i do think it's uh you know some people tease it like oh you, you know you can get in an airplane and fly away somewhere without putting it on facebook you can eat lunch without putting on a facebook it's amazing and, and the joke is obviously some people just feel like they can't do those things without <laughs> signaling to the world what they've done and the same goes against vaccine people who get vaccinated and then put it up on facebook they're like you know why don't you just do it in quiet look i yeah. like the idea of of telling the rest of the world that you've been vaccinated because i think that's actually the sweetest way to encourage people i think hectoring right. people and shaming them for not wanting to get vaccine vaccinated that's not great informing people the best thing you can do is be like a journalist or a scientist or something and really inform someone about the cost right. benefit analysis but short of that short of really trying to develop some layman's expertise uh, the best thing you can do is sort of just offer yourself up as an example of someone who's made a choice and sort of, you know, let 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 people know that you're voting with your feet. Um, you know, they did actually set up uh, selfie stations, basically, uh, mm -hmm. next to the vaccine thing so that people could take selfies in like a designated space, in a which spot. on one hand, that's, you know, from an esteem economy angle, that's a pretty good thing um, for the most part. Yeah, but on another side, it's just a kind of I find it, and this is perhaps where the steam economy doesn't. It isn't entirely a good thing for the steam economy. It also seems a bit creepy and dystopian. Like when you think of everything that's wrong with the social influencer age, um, yeah, it it does feel like that's part of it. <laughs> well, so I think you have a pretty deep um, aversion. You've got like a deep suspicion of governments ability to manipulate the esteem market right is that what i'm getting like if you see one of your if you see an american no no in, so, the, in so, their own backyard they like take a selfie and they're like hey i got vaccinated that doesn't put you off but because there's this government set up to amplify that, that signal that's it, part it's of the it. government manipulation side of it that's that's a but, little bit uh, putting and i share that suspicion in some regards i think it is a little bit uh all well no, in no, but of course uh, there's you know people but, play the national there, there is more to it than that there is there is much more to it than that i'm actually more critiquing the private way that the esteem economy is set up at the moment to favor you know i'm sure everyone's seen those videos uh well not everyone but you know a lot of people have seen those videos where someone pretends to be doing a thing and then gets photos taken of them for instagram and then they just Stop doing the thing the moment the photos are stopped. Uh, stop being taken. Oh yeah, that that's uh, inauthentic. That's very much fake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember. You know, there's a thousand names for it, but it's the it's the culture of everyone pretending they're a celebrity. Yeah. Um. 
it's yeah. it's not good, I think, for for our brains <laughs> and for our happiness. Well, I think something like that's. Tr- I I think it's complicated. Um, I I I found myself w- when I was young, I would spend time on Facebook and. And I'd sort of write messages to friends on their walls publicly, so everyone could see what I was saying, and yeah, everyone would yeah. see what they were saying. And then I kind of, some older friends were like, "Dude, isn't that a bit weird? It really is like shouting across the room uh, <laughs> at the bar. Like if you if you're if you're in a big you know crowded space, why not just go and like stand what, next what to the person?" What year was this that you that you kind of did this? Two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Yeah, you see. I think that's different because that was like the kind of early stages of sort of coming to grips with this technology. Yeah, I was and learning, and, but I like, was, but everyone, everyone who joins is is learning, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and some people join because they're five years old and they get a phone, and some people join because they're fifty years old and and now they've decided to join. And and right. I do think often it's the it's the naives who who make the most egregious mistakes but uh, yeah anyway the point is that i was trying to say is that i do think that uh it's it's easy to evolve to become a little bit more private um and for me uh there are sort of whatsapp groups that i have become part of since i got a fancy work phone and (laughs) and sometimes people do share pictures there and of you know a friend of mine one of them that i'm on there are a lot of engineers and a guy just got a new lubricant that sort of does great stuff for like a computer, supercomputer type thing. And so he took right. a picture of that and shared it with the group. Now he would have put that on Facebook 10 years ago. Um, right. And there he'd be acting a little bit like a celebrity. And, and the, and the, I think the danger when you put things on face, one of the dangers when you try and act the celebrity is that the numbers, it becomes a numbers game. You yes, don't see yes. who likes you. You just see the number right. of likes that you get and you got 40 likes or whatever it is. And that's not nearly as much as the big dogs who are getting millions of likes like Elon Musk yeah. or whatever it is. But when you share it with your friends, if you find a platform that allows it to, you to share just with your friends or with your family. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I agree with that completely. And it's like, great. Uh, you, you get that esteem that 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 people need, and that I think is worth encouraging. It's I, yeah, I'm no, so that's, proud that's, of my friend having done this amazing thing. Exactly. That's the that's a good kind of esteem in my eyes. That's the esteem from friends around you, from your family, from people who care about you, who you know, who you interact with. It's not the same as trying to sort of market yourself as a product for mass esteem and possibly financial or I don't know yeah. uh, self self confidence rewards, uh, which is which is the thing I'm specifically concerned about. Yeah, just the dopamine hits when you just want that yes. dopamine hit of getting another ping yeah. to say I've been liked you know, again. Yeah, why anyone? Yeah, you know you 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 see it quite often now. You have kind of usually wealthier teenage girls. Um, or young or young women who are in their sort of early twenties, and you ask them, "What do you want to be? Um, what do you want to do with your life?" And they say, "I want to be an Instagram influencer." Mm. And you know, I think there's a space in the economy for some Instagram influencers. What's the line? It, many, many are the calling, few are the trend. yeah. It does sort of slash a knife across my soul a little bit, though, because it does seem a little bit like a waste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's a difficult space to really uh find 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 a meaning that's 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 more than just sort of sugar. Yeah, yeah, no exactly. Um anyway. Well, we went on a strange rabbit hole here, but I uh, thought it was an interesting 
Yeah, no, a little bit of a tangent, but I think the um I think the through line is just that it that that what America's going through, South Africa is still in some ways yet to go through. We we they're further down the road in this, I think, than we are. Um mm. uh, particularly on the plague side, uh people so many people have been vaccinated, they can get back to normal. And yeah, that does mean some people uh tweeting about it one way and other people tweeting it about it another way. But the, but the real thing that's exciting, my friends, is seeing theaters and dance spaces open up again, is seeing the yes. streets get yes. a bit of vibrancy back in them, is seeing the restaurants uh, sort of just feel a bit more alive and the parks. Coming with activity, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. some joy and some some that dynamic sort of New York buzz is, it's not, it's not uh, all pistons firing yet, but some of that's coming back, and I think that's uh, that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. I mean, I, I think in South Africa we're in this very weird space where we are so tired of being tired of not getting the vaccines if we want them <laughs> or, or telling people that vaccines are terrible if we think they're terrible. Uh, right. You know, it feels so stale and it's so unmoved because of the glacial pace at which everything's happening that uh it might seem that it's almost impossible to acknowledge but there it is uh the the world's richest country is really getting back on its feet and it's not the only one uh, it's just the one no, that, the uk is that, also that I've lived as well. in. yeah my my fiance's parent mom has has uh been staying in moscow instead of germany for all of this year because she could get vaccinated in russia all of the family there's vaccinated <laughs> including the 22 year old girl the 80 year old granny the whatever and that's with sputnik right that's with sputnik i want to get a t-shirt i'm i've ordered a t-shirt that says uh, from the sister that says uh, sputnik sweetie because <laughs> i want to be a sputnik sweetie and in moscow the theater's been going and the ballet's been going and it's just you know she was like after she was vaccinated my almost stepmom uh she she wanted to stay in Russia because she just said it was so much more alive than Germany was. And I think, uh, yeah, this, maybe people are just very used to this thing of like the masks everywhere and the slightly offishness. I mean, I was like at a, um, a kind of engagement party and there was a new baby there and it was beautiful in, in a park on Sunday. It was really beautiful. Mm. And at the same time, like people would hug each other and then they'd be like, oh, damn it. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And just I, to, I, just to be in a place where you can just hug people because that's yeah. a wonderful human thing to do. That's a great thing. Uh, the Floyd I, trial, I think, ended really well. Justice was served. So I think America's yeah. got reason to be hopeful. It's not just hope uh, for its own sake. I think that the the wheels are, are yeah. going to be turning there. And and as you said, as they go, so much follows. I do I do hope that they create a good. Um, precedent that matters to South Africans, obviously Israel, and there's so many other countries, and particularly in the Far East that I care about, but that don't seem to influence our our social space as much. I hope that America uh, becomes more sane and more hope and more pragmatic uh, in the in this the rest of this year and the next to come on the back so of this. this. This brings to mind something that's been buzzing around my head for a while, and actually I'd like your thoughts on it. People in the UK seem to be incredibly angry for the most part about how their government has handled COVID. 
And I know um, uh, you in particular have actually had some criticisms of the early stages and the the uh, the college report from that. What what is that guy's name? Niall Neil Ferguson. Niall Ferguson. Neil Neil Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah. Neil Ferguson. Niall's the historian dude, isn't he? Yeah. Anyway. Mm. Uh, you you had some critiques and they were they were they were very good critiques, um, but I think especially compared to other governments, which in a lot of cases is quite a low bar, the British seem to have come off much better. I mean, you know, look at how they've kind of been vaccinated so early. Uh, they have like dates for when they're supposed to open things. There's like a very clear sort of staged withdrawal from this thing, which a lot of other countries don't seem to have. They're kind of just making it up as they go along. Am I missing something? Why are Brits so upset with their government's handling of COVID beyond just the sort of usual, you know, too harsh a lockdown, that kind of thing? Well, I think that Brits are disappointed. I think Brits are very proud of the National Health Service because there's because of the bipartisan convention that that's a really good thing. Um, it was it was a contentious issue. The UK in the last 50 years has sort of gone through cycles of nationalizing and then privatizing and then renationalizing and then reprivatizing uh, significant sections of their economy um and there was a question mark around whether healthcare should be nationalized or privatized once it is nationalized mm. question mark about okay if you're going to privatize other stuff shouldn't you be privatizing this stuff too but for the most part the right set, uh, rested on the thought that no this is the kind of thing where we think governments um are well suited, well, governments as competent as ours in countries as rich as ours, to um, uh, do away. You know, basically, there's just always this neighborhood problem, neighborhoods affect problem, or third party costs with healthcare uh, because someone who gets sick doesn't just uh, impact themselves; they impact their dependents uh, and their workmates, and so on and so forth. And so uh, they made the argument that we can do this more efficiently. Uh, in many parts of the healthcare system than the private care uh, industry might. And, and, and Brits have been very proud of that and consider themselves quite exceptional, mm. better than most of Europe because they aren't as big government as France, for example, and Spain, <laughs> uh, uh, but better than America because whereas America sort of rejects the national healthcare system, they go for it. And so they thought that they were in this wonderful sweet spot. And then in terms of deaths, it just didn't look like that. It still doesn't really look like that, like, yeah. the, like they're that, the, that they're particularly good by European standards. In fact, they're quite I weak see, by European standards. That's one I see part some, of some Brits have defended that's basically saying that they have some of the best screening testing regimes uh, in the world. I mean, they identified one of the variants really early on, uh, the one that they yeah. got. No, but I'm not talking about cases. I'm I'm talking about deaths. And their death numbers, whether you're measuring by COVID deaths or by excess deaths, are not uh, as good as proud NHS members would have expected a year ago. If you, or right. two years ago. In 2019, if you'd said this is going to happen, um, I think most Brits would have thought that they would have come right. out uh, relative to France and Spain and Italy than they have um, and America. So that's part of it. The other part of it, of course, I mean, we've got the Scottish national election coming up uh, and it looks like the SNP is going to win, which means that there probably will be a second referendum on whether France should, uh, sorry, whether Scotland should stay. <laughs> that's a historical slip because France and Scotland were, of course, uh, long allies against England. The old alliance, uh, yes. But, uh, you know, there probably will be 
it looks right now like uh, the smart bet would be on the United Kingdom falling apart. And that is a falling apart in the sense that that Scotland fully breaks away from the United Kingdom. And that is an existential threat in a sense. You know, I think Wales mm-hmm. will stay and North Ireland will stay, but that's North Ireland's also getting more touchy. Um that is, uh, I saw. I saw the Economist wrote a very damning um, article by Boris Johnson, which at the same time couldn't but give away the sympathy which must now have grown in their hearts <laughs> to him, because uh, he might very well be the prime minister that presides over the dissolution of a significant part of the United Kingdom, and that's mm. extremely traumatizing thing to consider. And I think that. Uh, uh, however uh, nefarious you you consider any of the actors to be, whether your favorite villain is Boris Johnson or Nicholas Sturgeon or um, whomever, uh, every, everyone's going to have a story where there's some terrible bad guy. But whoever that bad guy is, I think no one fully likes the the basic in-between kind of twilight zone that the United Kingdom is now sitting in. Um, mm. And I think that's the background temperature, which on top of uh, a lot of deaths and a genuine, a generally biting uh, uh, and acidulous media uh, have culminated to make the UK seem like a very unhappy place. And of course, then you've got football riots for the first time uh, yes. since I was an adult. Yes, upset about the, the owners. Yes, well, b- because the because there's this great capitalist ploy to like, well, stuff the stuff the national kind of league. Uh, and the U- and the UEFA League. Let's find a way to make the most money we can by having a short season with just the richest clubs, uh, so that there's never a game where only loyal soccer fans are watching, but the rest of the world isn't watching. Right. Let's try and make it like a World Cup every year, where we can try and get everyone to watch. And fans, uh, diehard fans, are really not into that, so they have blocked off uh, Manchester United from playing its, uh, uh, I think, a derby or uh, its. They're playing Leeds or something, weren't they? Anyway, it's one of its big fixtures of the year. Um, that's been blocked by the protesters. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to say is I think to understand all the anger against COVID, you have to see all of the anger that there was before COVID um, and that there will be after COVID. And, of course, that is true of America too. So, you know, one 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 mustn't uh, get too hippy-hopey about um, – the bustle returning and people coming when back are to we ever senses. too happy hopey <laughs> yeah well maybe i was for a minute just now with america but yeah no it's, i mean the deeper problems are are very real um and i'm 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 more worried now about the uk than than about the us and mm. and and that is not something that i felt um i think since 2016 when trump was elected i felt the same I felt very worried about the U.S., uh, but then he turned out uh, sort of not to be the uh, what the New York Times had portrayed him as, and so that worry sort of slackened. And I thought, well, you know, now there's this Brexit thing, which is still sticking around and really is very dangerous. Um, but I suppose it's just it's just become so much more pressing with the, the with the polling in the build up to the Scottish referendum and. Uh, and what a strange thought that we might, you know, live through so many uh, peaceful and wonderful kind of revolutions that seem to go in the right direction, like South Africa's, uh, mm. 
and and now a revolution that'll be peaceful, but I think is going in the wrong direction. Right. Uh, I, I must say, as, as so, you know, I'm not always entirely sure what what uh, my heritage is, but Scottish is probably one of the things that could make a claim to being my sort of ancestral heritage. And the idea of Scottish independence, it awakens some sort of, I don't know, beetle-like animalistic response of fury. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the idea. He is not talking like, in a brogue in your head about the damn fools of Glasgow. I, I've always, I've always, you know, I, 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 you know, I have, I know I have um, ancestry from pretty much all over Scotland, uh, from both the Campbells and the Macdonalds. Um, I, I have an ancestor who is uh, a direct descendant of Robert the Blue, Bruce, the famous independence king of Scotland in the 1300s, uh, of his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, <laughs> the idea of an independent Scotland, particularly run by the SNP, who I think are just hideous. They're very much the villains in my version. <laughs> <laughs> is is just... It it just it, it it makes me sick to my stomach in a way that I'm somewhat surprised by <laughs> because right. I don't yeah. really care that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh but yeah. No, it's uh so I really hope that the UK stays together because uh, you know, as far as political unions go between people who used to routinely kill each other all the time, it's been pretty successful. <laughs> yeah, it's been amazing. Really <laughs> and what a way for it to what a way for it to crumble if it does. Anyway, we'll see about that. Yeah, I wanted no, it's to, a long way to go. I think it's going to be close no matter what happens. I want I want to talk a little bit about sort of those deep dark feelings that you're describing, um, with reference to <laughs> a book that I've been reading, uh, lent to me by yes, seven wonderful. Votes. No, 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 not seven votes. Oh, uh, not seven votes. The the content of our character. Oh yes, even better. Um, so so Sarah Gon, our, our esteemed and wonderful colleague, lent me this book, and immediately I I liked it for for three re- for two reasons that aren't I don't know. One of them is really good reason. Uh, it's written by Shelby Steele, and we talked a little bit about Shelby Steele last year. He made this documentary called What Killed Michael Brown. Now, Michael Brown was the person whose death really made Black Lives Matter a national American phenomenon in 2015. And uh, it was on the back of those protests that the Black Lives Matter movement won the time sort of runner-up person of the year. And the famous line was, hands up, don't shoot. And that was the chant because the story was that Michael Brown uh, was being harassed by these police these nasty white racist police. And uh, he said, my hands are up, don't shoot. My hands are up, don't shoot. And then he was shot several times. And then the police went and stood over his head. And even though he was already dead, poured bullets into his skull. And that several people had seen this and and that justice would never be done because it was a white cop and a black unarmed man. And so the first 20 minutes of the documentary basically debunked that version, uh, which is very easy to do because there was huge investigative resources deployed from national level at the federal level, the FBI, um, who dug into this case to make sure that it wasn't police investigating each other that know each other and work together. Um, and of course, the the sort of 
the head of the America's National Prosecuting Authority at the time was black and the president was black. Uh, and they it was all their appointees. So there was also no way to, to cast the FBI's investigation as being directed by terrible white puppet masters. And the hard evidence includes that the kind of stuff that I always like to go for, which is the material stuff. Uh, the singed, uh, the, the, the fact that gunpowder was singed into the hand of Michael Brown, which indicated that he was shot from so close while he was reaching into the police car, hitting the police officer and was then shot through the door and the shards of glass and the, and the way that the ballistics, the, the gunpowder melted into his skin, his hand was like right by the gun. There was nothing like that on the other version. And then, of course, uh, it turns out that all, you know, that most of the witnesses who actually testified, uh, who had seen it uh, and were black people of the neighborhood, uh, described Michael Brown as sort of walking and then the police trying to stop him and then him trying to break into the police car and then getting shot and then running away and then turning around and running back. And it's as he's charging back and the officer is saying, stop, stop, stop. And then he keeps charging and then the officer shoots him dead. Uh, and there's no executing shot thereafter. So witnesses uh, together with ballistic evidence, together with um, other sort of hard evidence, all exonerated the officer in question. But that's just the first 20 minutes of the story. And then Shelby Steele gets into the rest of the story, which is, well, how did it get to be the case that Michael Brown um, sort of lived this life where he would go and steal, you try and cigarettes and stuff. You try to buy stuff from a store using marijuana and then stole something from the store. Uh, yeah. the, the night before he come, he came and said, like, can I buy something? And they said, no, he said, well, get some marijuana. And they're like, no, dude, we're not going to sell you <laughs> for marijuana. And then the next day he so goes in the, that store of, a, of a dude trying to buy McDonald's and marijuana. Once. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> The barter economy, I suppose, still does have its loyalists. Um, but it's like, how how does this happen? How does this happen? How does this happen? And he and he gets deeply into the politics of it. Um, and his own political history is that he was uh, he grew up. Um, his his parents were both capitalists and sort of ardent uh, political activists, and so he grew up into this political activist household and himself was a big time activist in the 60s and wanted to be part of building LBJ's great society and sort of saying America's government made racial problems. So the government has to be the solution and has you have to give free things to black people because they've had it so tough. And then he watched as those projects, literally the projects, the big buildings for the free housing and the schools, free schools and this and that. Uh, just all made things get worse. And he was amazed by that because things started out so bad and then they literally got worse. And then he became an, you know, an intellectual and, and studied the figures and saw the various uh, quotients, not just GDP and employment, um, but things like, you know, amount of time you spend watching TV versus amount of time you spend reading books, uh, number of families that have two parents, uh, number of teenagers that get pregnant right. and so on and so forth. Right. All these social markers and, um, in which you really see things getting worse after the civil rights movement, which was supposed to make things get better. And so he's dedicated right. his life to trying to understand this. And this book, the, so part of the reason I really wanted to read this book was because it's written by this guy who's very soft-spoken and very, he's just a beautiful man. He's very warm and sympathetic to mm -hmm. people whose ideas he really disagrees with uh, because he really wants to understand how this how this works. The other reason I really liked it is because this book was written in 1989, which is my favorite year. 
because the Berlin Wall fell, because that's when the Nats decided to, well, that's when F.W. de Klerk um, released uh, most people from Robben Island, Mandela uh, only two months later, but that was on Mandela's own insistence. Um, that's when the ANC and the SACP were unbanned and so on and so forth. So it's when South Africa made its way and it's when I was born. So I'm a big fan of this year. <laughs> And and I'm a big fan of this book. I'm only halfway through, but it starts out with the story. Sort of every every chapter is like an essay that starts out with a story, and and the and the first story is about these demons, a bit like yours, Nick, where where there's a kind of irrational anger that you feel because of something about your heritage. So he's he's at a dinner party in 1989 or 1988, and it's in a rich uh, sort of what. Uh, suburb in California and everyone at the party is white excepting for him and one other chap and they're getting along and that doesn't seem to matter um, until uh, this guy says you know I hate it that I have to send my kid to a school where there's so many white white kids and Shelby Steele is like, dude, I totally understand where that anger is coming from because I felt that anger myself. This this feeling of like being at a dinner party and everyone seems to be having a good time and I'm wondering, am I really having that much of a good time? And like, what am I really contributing here? And maybe the reason I'm not fitting in is because I'm black or maybe it's just because I'm not as interesting today as that person is because i'm just like a little bit tired and a little bit overworked and like hasn't been my favorite work week or whatever it is but here's something i can do that's really gonna just be memorable like if i do this at the party no one's gonna forget that they'll forget the jokes that were told and the wonderful story about that holiday that you just came back from and whatever they're not gonna forget that I said, and you all agree, that it's shameful that my child is the only black child in her class. What a terrible thing. And mm. and part of what Shelby does with that story is, 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 is something that feels so familiar to me is sort of try and think about how basically I would say people compete for esteem through race. And he and I talk about white burden supremacists who in that kind of situation are like, oh, no, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. And it is, we live in such a racist country and I'm so sorry and I wish I could help you. But, you know, we are raising some money for a scholarship just for black people or whatever, you know, so where they're really showing. But the way he puts it is he says, seeing for innocence. So these, there's this tendency of the white crowd to try and describe things in ways that make them innocent. Mm. And uh, and sometimes that plays off by just pretending there's no issue to do with race at all, a kind of colorblindness that I'm not in favor of. And sometimes it's by saying, well, look, we were so guilty, but now we're so humble that we're really the innocent. And then the black guy, of course, in the situation is also seeing for innocence in the sense that like he he's reading the situation in a way where where none of the, the issues in his life are his own fault. And, and he just put something so simply about the word victim, which has been so bandied about. What is a victim? 
Shelby Steele defines a victim as someone who is not responsible for their own circumstances. And I thought that just really hit the nail on the head for me. That is, th that's the real choice, right? That is, and that's where we as classical liberals do stand on the other side of the fence to some people. I think to us, a good life for an adult, I think it's different for children, but a good life for an adult means taking responsibility for your circumstances. And that is an uphill struggle because in the beginning, you don't have all the tools to really make things go your way. And yeah. when it's half and half, you don't kind of lean back. You you try harder to really take responsibility. And mm. and the thing that you end up figuring out you can take responsibility most of is yourself, is when you wake up and when you go to sleep and what you eat and like what you do with your with your hours in the day. So that's the thing you really take responsibility of. And it's harrowing because you do realize that you're not all that. I'm definitely much less amazing than I thought I was 10 years ago like when I was still a student. And even then, I think I I I had some strong awareness of my faults, but like I know what it is to 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 be at a party and just feel like the most uninteresting person in the room and <laughs> feel like, what am I, you know, what am I doing here? Like what do, today, sometimes I can have a good time, but what am I, today I'm just like a little flipping leech like sucking off other people and like don't really have anything to add that's a that's a that's not a feeling that uh um people have when they're in when the exu in the exuberant phase of youth of course adolescents often <laughs> also go through that like really depro emo phase where they feel like oh my god no one loves me but the thing to do is to is to work your way through it is to really take responsibility right. and the alternative is to just really um absolve yourself of, of responsibility to find innocence mm -hmm. uh this this childlike quality and and that's where shelby Steele starts and and then he and then he talks about race holding uh just as as this kind of nice meme term uh to capture what happens when someone holds on to their race in order to let go of their personal responsibility white or black mm -hmm. It happens in different ways at different times in history for different races. But race holding is his version, is his term for this um, this thing that's going on. And it and it is a little bit I mean, you do see it in yourself when you when you when you feel connected to the Scots through <laughs> through a story about blood. And I feel similarly about the Welsh, you know. I do have some Welsh ancestry and and the thought of a Welsh person standing up and saying we need to leave the United Kingdom does irritate me in a different way. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I can feel how if I if I if I indulge that feeling, if I if I drank from it like a like an alcoholic sort of opening the bottle of whiskey and just actually drinking straight from the bottle and not even just pouring it into a little glass, how I could become quite a different kind of person. And and mm. not necessarily a failure. Like I might become, uh, you know, quite successful in other parts of South Africa's media. I think you know they're definitely journalists yeah, that, that I know. Of, that that kind have, of rage and emotional story can drive a person far to far greater heights than taking the more considered view. Yeah. So, so and I think that's I think that's part of what Shelby Steele keeps doing is he keeps he keeps 
acknowledging mm. that there is something very human and very delicious about race holding or the racial fixation or race obsessing or um, whatever term you want to do. So that it's not just a dumb idea or or, or, or a silly thing. You know, it's like it's really uh, – if you if you want to critique that, you've got to understand how appealing it is and how much it can do for you, uh, and then figure out whether it's the case that the that the alternative is even better, um, right. and then and then show it to be so. And and that's definitely what he's he's set me up to believe he he will achieve. Um, but right. as I say, I'm only halfway through, so I'm just in this period where there's this guy who's racking his brains and like literally pulling his hair out. And talking about how he was this kind of angry young black man who saw everything through the lens of race. And then as he got a little bit older and a little bit wiser, he saw how this, the effects of that politics were collapsing everything around him that he cared for. And right. so he was forced to reconsider it and then feels so contributing of, to the very suffering he was so angry about. Yeah, but but and but then he feels wiser, but at the same time more impotent, more like right. Right. incapable yeah. of commanding like there's this magical power that he's had to let go of he can no longer because he no longer feels this way he can no longer honestly ruin a dinner party <laughs> yes and he used to do it as a as a 20 year old and as a 30 year old and he used to love it it was amazing there would be these people who'd like prepared all week to have a wonderful gathering and he shall be still could put a thorn in their brains that they wouldn't be able to exercise for months and they'd all remember him and see him later at the grocery store and wave at him excitedly like we're still friends right you know he'd make <laughs> such a little celebrity out of himself there's a i, I watched a youtube video recently uh, where a guy was, was expounding this theory that above all else we desire to be powerful in some way and that is i think quite a good example of that that phenomenon right yeah he there was something addictive about that power about the ability to just say a couple sentences and just change the whole mood of a room yeah. and make everyone desperate to seek your approval that's that must be a bit intoxicating it must be and i can see this i i'm starting to i mean from when i first went out um on the institute in the institute's vehicle uh, exploring rural South Africa, I started to see white South Africans flirt with this too. Like uh, BE crime, uh, right. government mismanagement. Like it's one thing to fetch about that as a citizen. And there's important and informative and interesting things to say. And ultimately it's my view that that if we are going to get better, it's going to be by acting as citizens together. But in terms of kind of striking an emotional spear through the heart of your fellow dinner party guest, being whitey uh, in rural South Africa and saying to a black guy, dude, you're richer than me and your mother-in-law was not killed on a farm. Mine was. And I'm a... You know, I'm an extraordinary victim because I'm white and, and that and that stigma follows me around wherever I go. I could see that intoxicating force too. And I don't want to, yeah. you know, no, I've, I've, 
I've definitely, I've definitely come across people who, you know, they, they're struggling to get a job because they studied into like, I don't know, interpretive dance or something. Uh, and, and the fact that they, you know, just smoke weed all day. Uh, but no, the real reason is that it's BE. Yeah. It's like, you know, BE is not helping, but dude, smoking weed all day and studying interpretive dance ain't helping neither. <laughs> there we go, dude. This is exactly, Shelby Steele has this beautiful story about his friend, his own close friend. <laughs> Who sells who who sells insurance? Who sold insurance in the eighties in America? And uh, he says, you know, I just I'm just not. He's in the same company selling the same product as a bunch of other guys, but he's the only black guy in the company uh, selling. And he says, I'm not doing as well as these other guys because I'm black, and people don't want to buy insurance from a black man. Then along comes a spider, in the form of two new black employees. Oh, no. who <laughs> nail it and do amazingly well and outperform him and a whole bunch of the white guys. And then Shelby says, I could see my friend. He was trying to, he was at this juncture where it's like, do I take responsibility? Do I see myself? Do I see the weakness in myself here? Or do I double down? And he sees him play these conversational gambits where he's like, no, no, no. The thing is, those guys are acting white. Ah, yes. And, but, yeah, no, and, and my problem uh, is that I'm an authentic black man. And, then, and, and the story finishes with like, you know, it's not clear which way he's ultimately going to go. But you can see that, that temptation as well. Like, and it is. Well, it's really crushing for one's it's personal so uh, crushing, you know, self-esteem is to realize that you weren't just unlucky. You were just bad. You, you I mean, are part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a horrible thought. And every one of us comes across that thought at least once in our lives. And it's very difficult to admit that we are the problem. Yeah, dude, I feel like I come across that thought once a day. And uh, and I suppose there's a way that that thought can also be energizing in like a in a bit of slightly slower pace, but like like a little drop, like a, what do you get those things in hospitals? A drip, you know, yes. like a little kind of adrenaline drip that every time I feel like, uh maybe i'd screw things up a little bit i mean i really do have this after every interview i do on radio or tv <laughs> yeah is i is i beat myself up about some sentence that i said wrong and this is not like humble bragging like there is always something that i could have done better and i don't yeah. think that's true yeah. of everyone i think there are really perfect interviews and i i aspire yeah, yeah, to one day who are just beautiful and yeah, they can just do it. Now I know how you feel. I'm, I'm just the same way about all the the podcasts and stuff I do, uh, in particular. Uh, same sort of feeling of mm, that wasn't so good, or maybe we shouldn't have talked about that, or you know. Uh, so it's exactly the same feeling. We are and running I out think, of time though, I so we I must just, must draw to a close. Your final thought, sir. Just to finish this thought, I I I think the the metaphor I'm trying to get through is that. In a way, a human being can run on two different kinds of petrol coming from the esteem market. And the one yeah. is um, where you're sort of motivated by crushing the world. There's this, right. there's this evil in the world and you're out to crush it and you're, the, and you're the angel, you're the innocent, and you hold on to whatever narrative is going to keep you in that position. And then you, you, you crush the world. Often you end up uh, making things worse because you can't see the the bad side of your the bad effects of your own actions. The other petrol 
that you can sort of run on is self-criticism and yeah. criticism that comes from other people that you really trust and know well, which right. is very close to self-criticism, sometimes even but more also, important because others can that are close to you. So it's not the stranger who calls you a racist or a or a right. Uncle Tom or a whatever the nasty word is that changes your behavior, but it is someone very close to you or yourself who kind of just picks up on this thing and that kind of energizes you to try and yeah. And it's like I, I might, from unleaded to 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 from from leaded to lead replacement petrol. Like I think you can right. make the switch. I think um, Shelby Steel the, kind of shows. A, yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. That's 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 a good point. Um, yeah. I think I think another way you might be able to describe that is something like a kind of honor. Like I think there's something empowering and and energizing about the thought that you are honest with yourself and that you truly are unshackled from the world and that you are a master of your own destiny, you know, the sort of uh, it, like the spirit of the poem Invictus, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I think that too can, can, in, if you manage to attain that, it can be intoxicating in and of itself, but it's not so easy as just telling yourself, oh, I'm the master of my own fate because it's very easy to slip into another mode of thinking. I like that. So it sounds like what you're saying is if you, if you, if you do the race holding thing, for example, mm. then because you can't see yourself clearly, because you're seeing mm. yourself through this filtered lens that right. makes you innocent, you actually are prey to manipulation. You, you're ultimately a pawn in someone else's game. Because right. if you don't fully understand your own situation, how can you be the, the full agent behind your own action? Whereas... Right. And and so you might do more in the sense that you might make more money or you might like but you're not the world fully more or the party more, as we might but, say. But yeah. if you if you actually know yourself, then you know in a sense that you're not a puppet dangling on someone else's string. Right. And it's it's encapsulated by I don't know if you've ever seen that meme. It's a farmer so, and he's standing there and he says, "It ain't much, but it's honest work." It's that mm. sentiment, that sort of, mm. you know, it doesn't matter necessarily where I am. I just know that it's my. I'm doing a good thing, an honorable thing, the mm. right thing. I think there is energizing power in kind of moral clarity and humbleness. Mm. Uh, mm. Anyway, that got very philosophical. I hope so, dude. I hope uh, that energy, well, let's hope that energy <laughs> exists. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll do a scientific experiment and we will come back to you, to our <laughs> listeners, uh, and see if, uh, if like Amarula, uh, the, the, the humble energy uh, really is out there right right uh recommendations um so yeah i want to make my recommendation anthea jeffrey's piece on the daily friend it what is it called nick can you uh the truth about the 1994 election, 1994 election. Yeah. and it it is it's it's sort of it's a precy of basically the last chapter of her book the People's War, uh, which 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 I read last year, 2019, and is uh, I wrote a bit of a review about it. It's you can check that out too, I guess, if you like. It's it's a really amazing book because um, the, the the poignant the the build up is that Anthea Jeffrey has sort of dedicated so much of her life to understanding race politics and and uh, lobbying and arguing against apartheid and trying to call for a dispensation much like the one that we end up getting particularly you know a lot of the constitution is 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 really stellar and 
so she like like so many south africans is is overwhelmed with joy uh in 1994 when we seem to have you know nelson mandela seems to have been elected in this in this fair way but she's also got a needle in the middle of her heart that like every time it pumps is is actually digging deeper into this raw flesh of knowledge of knowing that the elections were not uh by most reasonable standards free and fair by by being intimately acquainted with so many people stories who died uh in political violence at the hands of the ANC and understanding because of her very deep reading very concrete reading just of what anti documents said every ever since morohoro convention in the 60s i think it was and the renewed attitudes um the connections to to what the anc said that they learned from vietnam and how the, the vietnamese communists played the media game and so on um that she that she really understood that the wool had been pulled over south africans eyes not in terms of the whole project but in terms of in terms of some very key facts thousands of right. thousands tens of thousands of deaths in particular um and 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 the weird process by which the election was decided sort of being much more in cigar-filled rooms uh than mm. than uh, in front of things sort of starting with the problem being that even the, the ANC's own polling showed and all polling showed that the ANC couldn't have won a majority in 1992 because IFP had much more support and the NP had much more support and there were various other parties that had much more support and so right. the ANC getting from 42% to 62% that extra 20% which gave it the commanding uh seat in not so much in the executive but in the drafting of various policies the constitution and everything yeah uh it's just a, it's just it just comes i think it's a really good piece to it's it's written Look, in a I very think, cold way but if you if you listen very closely i think you can you can hear you can hear the the very human pain of someone confronted by a moment in history so profound that it can't just be good like and and that we mm. so naively think of it as just being good and she's definitely not arguing that it's just bad but she is sort of shining a light on a part of our history that i was blind right. to and that uh, it's so tempting to overlook so that's my recommendation indeed um at, at the very least it should encourage curiosity from future historians and such to look back and try and work out maybe what did actually happen because there are details that are missing this is part of the problem with this is yeah. that we don't really know exactly who said what and what the final decisions and all that were made on um yeah. there's just sort of evidence that points in, in one direction or another yeah. uh all right so for my recommendation uh, we did actually want to talk about something kind of weird and obscure today uh, which was the history of the delhi sultanate which is a medieval indian kingdom um which i think we might slot into another episode uh i don't know anything particularly good to recommend on that um i just read the wikipedia page and i thought it was fascinating and of itself so if you're very bored and have spare time go look that up uh but i guess the thing i might recommend is actually it's an old clip from bbc the bbc world on youtube 
and it's about persistence hunting, which is what's thought of as the oldest form of human hunting. And it follows basically a bunch of um, uh, Khoisan Bushman dudes uh, who are up in the Kalahari, and they are chasing down a kudu bull. And persistence hunting is a method of hunting where basically because human beings are very good at running quite slowly over very long distances, because we sweat, because we have two legs, all these other things, we can literally run animals to death. And uh, archaeologists and anthropologists and all that sort of thing think that this is actually originally how human beings would hunt. You chase after an animal until it dies of exhaustion and then you throw a spear at it when it's very weak. <laughs> you kill it. Or, or, or you start off by throwing the spear at it and just wait a bit to die from blood loss. It's it's very low risk to you, which is one of the great advantages of it. Um, and it allows you to take down animals that are very big. And in this case, the kudu bull is huge. And in the end, once they separate it from the herd, the, 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 the guys doing the hunt, they just say to their, they, they basically draw uh, straws and they say, okay, you're going to finish the hunt. Mm. And one guy, chases after the thing for eight hours and he just runs through the bush following its tracks he can't even see it most of the time sometimes he loses the tracks and has to kind of figure out what direction it went mm. and eventually at the end of those eight hours it collapses from exhaustion and he spears it to death and uh you know does a little ritual thanking it for its life force and that kind of thing so it's just kind of cool to watch that. Mm. And it reminds you that human beings are freaking awesome, terrifying machines. We are very, <laughs> are very scary. Whatever yes. the petrol is going into that tank is, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's... no, we are. We are magnificent creatures. Um, and if like a really skinny dude who does not look like he's had enough protein in his diet despite the hunting <laughs> um, can bring down a kudu, I think that should be inspiration to us all. <laughs> 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 and it's a big kudu too it's not it's not like little they choose the biggest one because they know it'll tire the fastest uh, oh those <laughs> horns those horns on top of his head yeah. a lot of extra weight to carry exactly on a long marathon mm. anyway uh that is all the time we have for today for this episode we hope you enjoyed and that we entertained you with our musings on various topics and uh keep the flag of liberty flying